0: You know, it's interesting when when you own a, um, a pet or, or a dog like we do, you kind of become um, a bit more aware of, you know, in parks, they have the, the park rules, the signs, you know, and you kind of just, you're, 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 you're walking the dog and you're, you know, you want to find out, is can, are pets allowed? Does it need to be on a, a leash or not on a leash? And usually, at least the parks near where we live... Um, the park rule signs are pretty, are pretty straightforward. There's not many of them. Usually it's, it's two or three main ones. Keep your dog on the leash, um, no open fires, that kind of idea. There's not many. In China, though, and I don't know if all the, all the parks in China are like this, but I came across this park sign for this one particular park in China outlining the particular rules for this park. Let me, the writing's probably a bit small for you, you, you to see necessarily. Let, let me read some that are on this list. No ball games. Okay, remember, this is a, a park you're trying to get into. No ball games, no pets, no fishing, no picking flowers, no hammocks, no kites, no tug-of-war, no climbing trees. In total, there's like 16 of these rules here, and it's almost like they thought of every possible fun thing there is to do out there, and then someone thought, okay, I've got an idea. How about we put them all onto this one sign and not let anyone do any of these if they're wanting to come join and be part of this park? And you know, I wonder if sometimes the average person thinks that, that becoming a Christian and coming in and joining a church like ours, for example, is a bit like that. It's like those Christians thought about every possible fun thing there is to do out there. You know, to to drink, have a good time, to smoke, to, to have sex freely. And they thought, well, how about we put all of those into one book and not let anyone enjoy life? The passage we're going to be looking at this morning has a list like this. To some it might read like that park sign and then that, the Chinese park sign, and you might be like, um, here we go again. Those Christians talking about, we might get rid of this slide just for now. You're like, here we go again. Those Christians talking about everything they're against, you know, wanting to take the fun out of life, and, and that might be one way that you, you read this list here. or Or perhaps you might read this list that we just read in the way that when Paul was writing it how he wanted it to be read and understood as a warning sign, intended for our good, ultimately intended for our protection, our eternal protection. So this morning, in the same way that in, you know, in the, over the next few weeks we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit, I thought we should at least spend one week at looking at the works of the flesh mentioned here, or as Paul puts it, as he describes it, The the deeds of the flesh, the acts of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. And what we're going to see is that by making this list, Paul has a warning, not only for the Galatians, but even for us. And and just, I guess, a full disclaimer, um, there are going to be some strong, kind of even adult themes throughout the the talk here, so I just want to put that out there in case you, you needed to know that. But... One of the warnings he has that Paul has for us is going to say that even though you belong to Christ, even though the Holy Spirit is in you, even though you have a new nature, don't forget, ever forget that the old nature, the old man, the old self, is at war with you. That part of us that is still yet to be renewed by the Spirit, that part of us that is still inclined to rebel against God, the old man will try to take control of you, every opportunity he gets. How? Dragging us back, dragging us back to the way that we used to live, the things that we used to do before we became a Christian, by doing the things that the flesh loves to do, the things that the flesh does naturally, and he's going to list what they are. So that's a warning for Christians, about the old, old man, the flesh, There's also a warning here for those who may not be a Christian just yet. What we're going to see, this is also a warning for those who maybe wrongly believe they're Christians. For those who might be convinced, but not yet converted. Convinced in the mind about some of these truths, but your heart has not yet been truly converted and transformed. Because Paul will say, get this, what Paul is saying here. If these works of the flesh are things you habitually practice as opposed to occasionally give into, well, then maybe you haven't understood grace. Maybe you haven't understood the gospel. The Spirit, perhaps, is not in you producing its fruit, and therefore, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not an easy passage to look at this morning. But here's what we're going to try and do. Now we can slow, show that next slide, Arthur. What we're going to try and do is see, uh, we're going to unpack this list. And the first thing we see is that Paul kind of categorizes the, these sins, these works of the flesh, into four main basic categories. We could call them sexual sins, spiritual sins, social sins, substance sins. And, and what we've done really is just taken that whole list of them and kind of put them in these four main categories. Kind of like Paul Paul does this in other places where he's got similar lists in Romans and Ephesians. So let's start with the first category then. The sexual sins that he mentions. And the first one he mentions there is sexual immorality. You know, I reckon if we could transport Christians from any other century throughout church history, and we could somehow transport them into our modern-day Western version of Christianity, I reckon what would, what would most surprise them would be how at home we Christians are with sexual impurity today. It's like it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't affect our consciences at all. It doesn't offend us. In fact, unless it's like really bad and, and really explicit and really graphic, okay, it's that, th- it can seem quite normal. But even worse than that, more than that, since it's literally plastered all over our screens, your phones, YouTube, all over our kids' screens, we take it as far as to find it finding it entertaining. We, we laugh at those, like, the, the, the Bachelor shows where everyone's just trying to get on with whoever they can. We laugh at those, um, I don't want to be offensive, but let's just be, I want to be sensitive. We laugh at the the two gay dads on Modern Family or that gay chief guy on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and we kind of giggle and laugh at the antics, the gay antics that are going on. You know, I find it hard to think that Paul The first disciples, think about these first disciples, these ones who are are fighting to stay alive even for their faith. (laughs) That they would be okay sitting down with us for hours and hours on end like we do, having a laugh with us while we're watching all these kind of sexual sins being played out in front of us. Remember the context these early Christians were in, pagan cultures, pagan societies, Therefore, their view of sexuality would have been quite similar to, to our post-Christian view of sexuality. Culture where, you know, sex was free and open. So, so here's one of the first major things in a culture and society back then that needed to happen, the, the change that needed to happen when someone first became a Christian one of the first things these new Gentile converts had to accept was a radically different sexual ethic to view sexuality in a vastly different way to everyone around them. That was was one of the very first big changes that would happen in someone's life when they became a Christian. And, and, And kind of which is why it seems, if you go to some of these lists in Romans, Ephesians here, it kind of seems like, Well, it makes sense why Paul would often start these lists with things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Because he knew, whether you lived 2,000 years ago, whether you lived 1,000 years ago, whether you're living today, Paul understands the power and control that sexual desires can have in someone's life. Worse than that, worse than that, the devastation that yielding to these sexual desires can produce. It's kind of what we're seeing played out in the courts, right, with the, with the Catholic Church. You know, it's interesting that the original kind of Greek word that Paul uses here for sexual immorality, it's a word that, that you're probably familiar with. It's this word pornea. Now, before you start thinking, well, it must only refer to, like, pornography or anything like that, I found this helpful definition that of, of all the things that might be included in this one word for pornea. This author, a guy called Kevin DeYoung, he, he writes this. The simplest way to understand pornea is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or with your wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you would not be upset. If someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek or even a peck on the lips in some cultures might be appropriate. But if you found out another person had sex with your wife or saw her naked or touched certain parts of her body, you would be furious. If you found out another person made out with your husband or talked about sexual activities or made certain gestures, you would be heartbroken. Why? Because these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple. They're only inappropriate when practiced outside of the lawful relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. Any sexual activity between those who are not married, or between two men, or between two women, or among more than two persons, or between family members, or between those married to other people, any sexual activity in these contexts is sin and can be included in the prohibitions against porneia. It's kind of this wide net that's included there in this one word. Some common objections you might hear to this, but hold on. Hey, but we, but we love each other, so no, Paul would say that, that's pornea. Hey, we're going to get married. N- no, that would be pornea. Hey, but we'll, look, we're not actually going all the way, no that would be porneia. But it's just, it's just over text messages, no. That would be porneia. But my wife isn't fulfilling her marital duties, and so No, Paul would say, that would be porneia. So then moving on to the next couple there in this first category, there really is an overlap here with the first one. See, where impurity kind of focuses on the filthiness generated by these sexual sins, whereas sensuality emphasizes the the kind of lack of restraint, that uncontrolled passion that drives these sexual sins. And so what does Paul say about this first category of sins? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So moving on to the next category, we might call spiritual sins or we we might call religious sins. Idolatry. Okay, We, we know idolatry, many of us know, of course means the worship of other gods, but if we will kind of broaden the definition, it could be that pursuit of finding our identity, our security in anything or anyone other than the one true God. Okay, back then, it may have looked like some little carved image or idol or statue or the sun or something from nature. But today, where is it people are finding their identity and their security? Think, let's think about this for a second. Us fellas, some of the fellas here have been talking uh, quite a bit about working out, and we've even you know, been, been working out quite a bit. I went out and worked out with one of the guys not too long ago. So it's on our minds a lot. But it's been helpful to hear and, and even get a warning from, from someone like China, for example, who's, who's lived in this world for a while. Just how many people he knows where well, this, is, this is their obsession. Their identity is wrapped up in the appearance of their body. So often we always used to talk about girls, right? Girls who are obsessed with with body image and all that kind of thing. But today it seems to be just as much a problem with young boys. And they're even calling it a form of reverse anorexia, right? Where anorexia used to be like this, I, I, I need to get smaller and smaller, I'm too big. For the boys it's the opposite, I need to get bigger and bigger and more buff. To the point where it becomes an obsession and it becomes a form of idolatry. I don't know if you're ever on Instagram and you scroll and you see. Come, I reckon on Instagram today, there's just as many photos of the young, the young guy. You know the ones I'm talking about. They're in front of a mirror. They've got their shirt off, the cap on. They're, they're flexing their muscles. You know, as you would of girl, young girls taking selfies. It's probably evens out. And not only are the photos up there, but what are they obsessing about once those photos are up? How many likes does it have? How many likes is it getting? What what am I worth? I know this. I have a teenage boy in my own home, so I know this is the kind of things they get up to. But what would Paul say? Cut it out. Stop trying to find your identity and worth in what others think of you. It's idolatry, but now sorcery, on the other hand. Whereas idolatry is like the worship of other gods. Idol- uh, sorcery might be the worship of, the, of that which is evil. Okay? Other, other translations say um, witchcraft. Uh, contemporary examples might be things like you know, forms of the occult or, uh, or Satan worship or um, black magic. But you, but you know what, what I found interesting as I was studying some of this? the word they're used for sorcery is actually a word that you, you might find familiar as well. It's this word called pharmakeia. Pharmakeia, it's where we get the English word pharmacy. And it points to, to the fact that in the ancient world, witches often prepared and administered lethal poisons. Witches often prepared and administered poisons that would kill. Now, I wonder if you can think of a modern example of people who prepare and administer lethal poisons. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that a modern parallel to witchcraft and sorcery includes things like abortion, euthanasia, Forms of killing that in our culture are usually performed not by witches, but by doctors. But that according to the Bible are wicked deeds of the flesh and those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. The next category of sins, the social sins. We might put it another way, sins which lead to the breakdown in relationships, enmity, strife, you know, you know, those people that we know, maybe it's you, always kind of hostile and in conflict with people all the time, sometimes because of jealousy, and oftentimes, what does it lead to? Anger, fits of rage. I don't know if you keep up with the news. It's, it almost seems like every second day there's a new video clip that shows up of road rage, right? The, the latest road rage video clip. Of, and these kind of things, these fits of rage are happening on our, on our streets, in our schools, amongst boys, I was talking to one of the, the young guys on Toby's soccer team just this last week, and he was telling me why he got expelled from school. He said that this guy, he didn't like what this guy did to his cousin, so I lost it, and I pounced on him. It took 10 guys to take me off of him. That's how bad I was beating him up. That's how bad. he had to go to hospital. And it was just kind of telling me this quite normally. It's 15-year-old boy on his way to becoming one of those men that we're going to see on the videos of the road rage on the news. It seems like our culture, our society, is getting angrier and angrier. And then there are things like rivalries. Envy can lead to breakdown in relationships as well. Like with th- Things like when you're so determined to get ahead, to be successful, even at the expense of... Of others, or maybe for you, it's it's you just can't be happy when others succeed, right? This what this, this old guy Socrates once said: the envious are pained by their friends' successes, and envy can lead to, to to what in our Aussie culture can you know is often referred to as you know the tall poppy syndrome. We don't like it if others succeed, so what's our natural response? We try to bring them down. We try to cut them down. It may not be in such a kind of outward, literal sense, but maybe it's, it's kind of festering in our heart, this desire to want to bring them down and cut them down. It's the envy. These two, Paul says, are works of the flesh, and those who practice them, those who do them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, two more sins that Paul lists here that we might categorize them as substance sins, substance abuse. We, we know... The Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol, right? Otherwise, we'd be sitting every time we had communion every week because there's wine in some of those little cups. There's alcohol. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. But you know what it does do? It condemns getting drunk. You know, what the young people today might call getting wasted. It's a clear prohibition. And lastly, where he says orgies... This wasn't just a reference to sexual activity, it included drinking orgies as well, all kinds of wild partying, where sex and alcohol were kind of present and rife and free-flowing. You know, think pub crawls, think out-of-control hen's nights, buck's evenings, some, some of those music festivals that are kind of creating a bit of trouble at the moment, where sex, drugs, it's rife. Which I, side note, just putting my two cents in, which I reckon the government should ban. Like, it's like, what are they waiting for? Like, How many young people need to die or get arrested before they actually get rid of these things? So what does Paul say about these substance abuse sins? These two are works of the flesh, and those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're like me, you might be thinking... Well, it looks like none of us are going to heaven then. Like, who actually gets to go? Who's going to, get, who's going to inherit the kingdom of God? Or you might be thinking, you know, looks like you confirmed what I thought was already true. You Christians are only interested in pointing out the sins of people. You know, Christianity is all about taking the fun out of life. But is that really the heart behind Paul's warning here? You see, forget about... That, that Chinese park sign that we saw at the beginning, and think more something like, like this one. Think of it as one of those signs you might see at the beach, warning swimmers that sharks have been spotted. Man, the lifeguards, they're not, they're not out there trying to, to take away your fun. What are they trying to do? They're trying to save your life. And in the same way, Paul is wanting your life to be saved, your eternal life in the kingdom of God to be safe and secure. And so he warns us that those who practice these works of the flesh will not enter the kingdom of God. So then who can enter? Who can enter? And and let me explain this for just a moment before you start thinking that maybe we are teaching some kind of works-based salvation here. Um, we can get rid of that slide. And I think the key to understanding what Paul is really getting at here is in understanding this one little phrase that he says in amongst all that, where he says, those who do such things, let's just focus about these, this little sentence. Those who do such things. Now, pe- people much smarter than I am, people who know the, Greek, the biblical Greek language much better than I do, they have noted that the best way to understand this little, this little Greek kind of terminology here is, is not to read it as saying those who occasionally do such things, but rather those who habitually practice such things. That's the force behind you know, the, that, that verb, the force behind that verb that indicates habitual action, not this one occasional lapse. See, Paul isn't talking about Christians who from time to time commit one of these sins against their better judgment who commit these sins while all the while knowing that they're grieving the Holy Spirit, who commit these sins wishing they could stop. Rather, he's talking about people who practice these things without ever confessing it, without ever repenting of it, or who, where it doesn't even bother them at all. I was talking to, 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 a, to a young person not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago. He told me that he would feel terrible after sleeping with his girlfriend. And it was a wrestle with him every time. But he noticed that it wouldn't bother his girlfriend at all. And it kind of makes sense that it wouldn't. Because the flesh, when you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit in you, the flesh is doing what comes natural to it. And it doesn't have this new nature to be fighting against it. And so Paul says this kind of lifestyle does not lead to the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, you know what? Many people are okay with that. I mean, think about this. Why would someone who loves to break God's law while here on earth even want to go to the place where his law will be kept perfectly all the time? They wouldn't. I was reading a a book about holiness this last week, and this is what the author says. He says, just to, to get us thinking about the holiness of heaven for a moment. The Lord of heaven is a holy God. The angels are holy creatures. The inhabitants there are holy saints. Holiness is written on everything in heaven, and nothing unholy can enter into this heaven. Even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you think, Why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you were not holy here. Or as Spurgeon put it, sooner could a fish live upon a tree ...than the wicked in paradise. The reality is... ...many are content to remain living without God... ...and in fact would say... ...that they're looking forward to the alternative. There was this this New York Times bestseller book... uh, ...maybe 10, 15 years ago... ...and this was the title of the book. I hope they serve beer in hell. This is a blurb from the Wikipedia page... Composed of short stories narrated by the author, the book often focuses on the narrator's humorous excess. The stories deal with themes such as the author's view on women, drinking, often to excess, insulting people, and embarrassing sexual encounters. What would Paul's warning be to, to someone who kind of flaunts this lifestyle so openly? Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sadly, I think his response would be, I'm all good with that. I just hope they serve beer in hell. The devastating part will be when he finds out they don't. In fact, he's going to wish that there was something to drink there at all, right? He will probably wish something along the lines of that rich guy in the story that Jesus told who said... Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So just a question then, to start wrapping all of this up. Does that mean, because where does all this leave us, Christians, does that mean that that Christians will, will never do any of these works again? Will, will we always be free from doing these kind of works? What about those Christians, and maybe that, that's you, and I don't know, that's me, who occasionally struggle with some of these works of the flesh? What do we make of that? And I saw this funny little illustration that, I, that, I, that perhaps helps describe what it's like for us living as Christians today. We, we might show this, this next slide. Everyone knows the story of the, the princess and the frog, perhaps. Maybe you do. Princess kisses the frog. He turns into a prince. Well, after that kiss, and now that he's a prince, I think there's a, is there a next slide there. He's turned into a prince now. They went out on a date, the story is told. They went on a, out on a date to get to know each other better, so on. So they went to this nice restaurant for a nice meal, And they're eating away when suddenly a fly starts buzzing around the table. And the prince sees the fly, instinctively hops up onto the table in a frog position, and in one big gulp, kind of tongue comes out, catches that fly, starts eating it up. As you can imagine, completely ruins the date. But what was he doing? What happened in that moment? Did he become a frog again? Well, no, he didn't become a frog. He was, he was, he was acting like a frog. He's still a prince, acting like a frog. It ruined the date, it spoiled the relationship for a while, but it didn't change his primary identity. So, that's perhaps as we start winding up, the first question that we, that we need to start asking, and I'll ask that of, of each one of us here. What is your primary identity? Are you a prince? Or are you perhaps wrongly believing you're a prince, but you, you really deep down inside, you're a frog still? Do you belong to Christ or do you belong to the old self? See, what, what about Christians who feel just dominated by, these, by addictive sins of pornography and gambling or... Or, or who have fornicated, or who have committed adultery, or or who are easily given to anger and envy and idolatry, what about them? What of them who kind of keep... How they, are you a prince or a frog, if this is you, who kind of habitually keep going back into these things, and you're like, whoa, after hearing this warning from Paul, I didn't even know where I stand. Well, you know what Paul would say to you? Something that he writes to the Corinthians in, in his second letter to them. He writes... I think the slide's up there. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And what's the test to know whether Jesus Christ is in you? Well, ask these questions of yourself. Am I habitually practicing these sins? Or is there no confession or repentance after committing these sins? Is there a sense that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit after committing these sins? If there's none of that, well, perhaps you do need to ask, as Paul is asking us to ask, is Jesus Christ indeed in me? But now on the other hand, on the other hand, Paul would say, and he's been saying this in Galatians, if there is this war, going on inside of you, and the struggle is real and it's hard, Paul would say, this fight, this struggle is a sign that the Spirit is at work. So you have no reason to despair, because Paul also says to the Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the very fact that you are concerned about your spiritual state, your spiritual condition, shows that the Spirit is working and that He is there wanting to enable you to live a life more and more pleasing to God, a life more and more progressively characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Please come for the next few weeks so you know what those are and how to live those out. But He would say to you, please, don't despair about your salvation. Because in the same way that there is nothing we can do to earn it, he would say there's nothing we can do to lose it. However, however, should we be just okay? Hey, the old little frog inside of me pops his ugly head every now and again. Should we be okay with that then? Like, okay, the struggle is real. It's in me. Is that kind of where Paul is wanting to leave us? No. No. He's going to tell us, do everything you possibly can to kill that guy, that old self who's trying to kill you. I've got this last slide. I read this article in an American newspaper uh, online many years ago, and this is what it said. Dead snakes can bite. From June 97 to April 98, 35 snakebite victims were admitted to a hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. Of those 35 victims, five of those were bitten by dead snakes. Justin Clough, for example, age 21, was bitten by the decapitated head of a rattler. He lost part of his right index finger. Even though that snake was dead, his head was chopped off, its instinct was to keep on biting and killing, and it was still poisonous and dangerous. And that snake's decapitated head is how we should be thinking about our, our sin. About our flesh, its instinct is to keep on biting and killing, and it is still poisonous and dangerous, which is why when Paul talks about sin and the old self, he's going to use language like over in Romans, he says that we are dead to sin, okay, on the one hand, we are dead to sin, but still in that same sentence, he's going to say, but do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then in Colossians, he's going to say things like, put To death, your sinful nature. You know what our sinful nature is like? Because it's like, oh, I thought it's dead, but it keeps coming back. You know, in like action movies, there's always like the good guy and the bad guy. But the bad guy just never seems to die. He'll get blown up. He'll get shot 10 times. He'll be in a car crash, all of that. But he just keeps coming back and back and back. Sin no longer has any control of you. Sin is not your master. But what he's saying is that sin will control you if you let it. So Paul says, kill it and be killing it before it kills you. So that's a question for us this morning as we kind of look at this hard list from Paul about the works of the flesh. Which one or which ones of those are that snake's decapitated head that just keeps coming back? And biting, and biding, seeking to kill and destroy. What do we do about that? Let's, let's go to the words of Jesus to end. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He's saying it needs to be drastic. It needs to be drastic, whatever it is that we need to be killing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it's hard, but it's true. It's truth that we need to hear. Lord, we know that It is only by your Holy Spirit in us that can produce not only the fruit of the flesh, but also the the ability to kill the sin which is wanting to control us. So please, I pray, Father, um, you help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.